there's any other children that are heading down, uh, they should run. They're already halfway down there. Uh, If you're not heading down there, then go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew. We are making our way through this book. And so we timed it so that we would be in the birth narrative of Jesus as we've come through this Christmas season. The title today is The Beginning of the End. I was told that sounds ominous, but hopefully it'll make sense as we come through this message. You know, I think think the kids have done it well today and just... Have you noticed that the entire world, whether you're Christian or, or, or a non-Christian, that there's a joy at Christmas? Have you noticed that? I mean, we, we all look forward to the Christmas season with hope and joy. We, we, we bake cookies, we, we make fudge, we decorate trees, we put lights all over our houses, and we put blow-up cartoon characters in our yards and on our roofs. I feel like my neighborhood... Somebody was selling them, and everybody in the neighborhood bought them but us. Um, We didn't know about it, but there's lots of inflatables out this year. We make gingerbread houses. We spend time with family and friends. There's just a joy about this time. In fact, the songs that we sing, they're filled with this hope. Joy to the world, jingle bells, we wish you a Merry Christmas. Go tell it on the mountain. Come on, ring those bells. Oh, come, all ye faithful, silent night, a holy night, deck the halls. They're all just filled with joy and anticipation of Christmas. Everything about Christmas is joy, is hope. And so today in our text, we're going to see that as Christians, especially Our hope and joy ought to be much deeper and much richer than the world could ever imagine. I want you to think of Christmas as like a a gold mine that begins at the base of a mountain. And upon entering in this mine, we see a rich vein of gold that stretches for miles and miles and miles as it winds deeper and deeper and deeper under the mountain. And the further we go, the vein only becomes larger until eventually there is gold under us, above us, around us, and the glow of gold is all about us. Today in Matthew, we see like, the, like that vein of gold running deep under the mountain, so the hope of Christmas runs deep throughout the Old Testament giving us an unbreakable, unconquerable, unending joy in Christ. And so Matthew is going to want us to see that everything in the Old Testament has been looking forward to and anticipating the birth of Christ. And so my hope that as we come through this text today is that our joy would be like this unending vein of gold. May it be rich and everlasting. And so what I want to do is I want to invite you to go ahead and stand, and we are going to read the birth narrative that we have before us today, Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. Here we go. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. This Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. 
A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child as a mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophet might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Let me pray. Father, we, we come to you now in the name of Christ. And we, we thank you for Christmas. We thank you for sending your son Jesus who frees us from our sins, gives us everlasting life, fills us with joy. And so, Lord, as we, as we look at this text that is horrific in so many ways, give us wisdom today. Give us eyes to see that we would behold the hope and the joy of Christmas, that our joy in your son Jesus would be unbreakable, unconquerable, and unending. Father, give us grace today. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Christmas is all about joy, and yet we have this horrifying text that we come into at Christmas. And so let me, let me just kind of paint the picture, help us to kind of understand a little bit what's happening here. Matthew wants us to know the spiritual condition, the world in which Jesus has come into. He wants us to know that Jesus has come into a dark and sinful world, and Herod, the king of Jerusalem, is infuriated about hearing that there's a rightful king of the Jews. Remember last week we saw Herod is not the rightful king of the Jews. He's not even Jewish. He's a puppet. And so now that he hears that a true king is on his way, he is furious and he unleashes his fury by slaughtering babies in hopes of killing this king. So that's that's the physical. That's what's happening on the surface. Now now, if we were just to pause and we were to go to Revelation real quick, and I think it's going to be on the screen, but I encourage you, go back and read this passage later. Revelation 12, 1 through 6. Yes, it's about dragons, but it's about Christmas. Um, it gets there. <coughs> Here we go. Verses 1 through 6. Just think about what Revelation. So Revelation is a, is a book of pictures, and, and it peels back the physical so we would get a glimpse into the spiritual. So just think of John, the writer of Revelation, peeling back the physical world so we could kind of see behind the scenes, behind the curtain, and understand the true spiritual reality of what is taking place. So this is what we read, Revelation 12. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant, was crying out in birth pains, in agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. 
She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a, a place prepared for God by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. There's a lot we can say. Let me just boil down a few of the details here. The woman represents Israel. It's obvious that she is Israel who's in birth pains in the Old Testament, waiting for the Messiah to come, waiting for the king who will rescue them. The great red dragon, of course, is Satan, the ruler of this world, who is waiting to kill this baby. Of course, so who is the baby? Who is this king who has been born to rule the nations? He is the one we've been reading about all throughout the Old Testament. He is the Messiah. He is Jesus. He is our Christ. We have an unconquerable, righteous king who's been born to rule the nations. And what's strange here is that we have this horrible, baby-eating, power-hungry dragon unable to kill a small baby child that has just been born. You know the irony here? John paints the picture, and I think he does it right. Horrifying dragon, small baby, dragon, unable to defeat this child. And of course, when it says the baby was caught up to God in heaven, that speaks of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and his ascension, that right now he is on the throne, ruling the nations until the day that he comes back. So here in Revelation, like I said, we're going to sneak peek behind the physical, behind the curtain, and what we see is that Satan hates God. He hates his glory. He hates his plans. And he wants nothing more than destroy Jesus, kill God's people, and thwart the plans of God. And when we turn back to Matthew now, and so we go, okay, here's a real historical figure. But according to Revelation, he represents and is empowered by Satan himself. Herod, like Satan, will do anything to defend his power and defy God, even if it means slaughtering innocent babies. Now, to be clear, not every act of evil in the world is, is because of Satan. We don't need to think that he, every bad day is the result of Satan. The reason you haven't got all your Christmas shopping done is not because Satan you know, wouldn't let you get out and do your Christmas shopping. But clear, Satan is real. He hates God. And notice, after Herod dies, his son, Archelaus, his wicked son, takes the throne. And so Jesus enters into a dark world led by rulers and powers and governments that hate God. That's the world that he comes into. That is our world. It is no different today than 2,000 years ago. The world as a whole is in opposition to God, his kingdom, and the king, Jesus Christ. Christ. But notice in Revelation and here in Matthew, Jesus survives. The great red dragon is no match for the baby Jesus, which brings us to our first point. At Christmas, Jesus comes as the conquering king who defeats the kingdom of Satan. We cannot forget that. Joseph and his family, they don't escape Herod because of their wisdom and cunning. I mean, if we look, Matthew clearly emphasizes why they survive. Because of God's powerful providence four times in chapter 2 the first one is in verse 12 and then the rest are in the passage that we read we see God guiding 
and protecting his people by giving them messages through, dream, through dreams. Verse 12, verse 13, verse 19, verse 22. Satan has many wicked plans, but none of them can overcome God's will. Proverbs 20, verse 30, 21, verse 30 says, No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. So what we have is Jesus came, and he conquered, and he now sits on his throne, ruling all, all creation, preparing it for his return, which, which is why I say this is the beginning of the end. At Christmas, we have the climax of God's redemption plan. Everything in the Old Testament has been looking forward to this king. He has now come, and now that the king has come, now that the king has conquered, we know that he will come again. This is the beginning of the climax of, of God's redemption plan in Jesus and so because Christ has come, we know that the end is near. Christmas reminds us of the supremacy of God. Evil does not win. Satan loses. Christ reigns. We cannot forget this truth. The Bible never, never wants us to think and it never presents, presents us to a way that, that God and Satan are like two chess masters playing for the outcome of the world and we're, we're on the sidelines just waiting. Well, who's going to win? You know, what we see is Satan's a pawn. We see this clearly in our story three times. In our passage, Matthew shows that the evil events empowered by Satan, carried out by Herod, fulfills the hopes, promises, and expectations of the Old Testament. So not only is Satan unable to thwart God's plan, but God uses him to accomplish his plans. In other words, at Christmas, we're reminded that Satan is upon not a true and rightful king. At Christmas, Jesus came to establish his kingdom, and he destroys the kingdom of Satan. I want you to think, this is why our joy is so rich. At Christmas, we celebrate the king, the king who has come, who has conquered, and Satan who has been defeated. And so, so now... He's going to, Matthew's going to bring us into these fulfillment passages. There's three passages in our text. And each of these are just going to help us understand who Christ is and what it is that he has come to do. And if you're familiar with your Bibles, then, then you know that these passages are not typical messianic prophecies. Like, like ones that clearly look forward to Jesus. In fact, what we're going to see is that Matthew uses somewhat quite obscure passages and his point is going to be that the entire Old Testament has been longing for and anticipating the birth and the reign and the rule of Christ. And so, so let's look at these. We'll look at them one at a time. First one is going to, the point is, at Christmas, Jesus comes as the true Israel who perfectly obeys the Father. So let's look at this. In verses 13 and 14. We read that Joseph and his family, they, they flee to safety in Egypt. Egypt had a population of about a million people, so at that time, it's a pretty good place to go and hide. Um, in verse 15, Matthew says that Jesus going to Egypt fulfills Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, which in, in its original, it says this, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Do you see the connection? Maybe. Like, how, how does this, Israel, being called out of Egypt 2,000 or so years earlier, 
connect to Christ in Egypt? How does that work? Well, the answer is really found in the word son. In fact, if we were to look at it, Adam, the first man that was created, he was called God's son. In fact, if you go to the genealogy of Luke, you trace it all the way back to Adam. Adam is called the son of God. He was created righteous and yet sinned and disobeyed God. Israel is corporately called God's son. We see that in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. God saves them, brings them out of Egypt, gives them his law, promises them his presence if they will obey him. And what do they do? They sin and disobey. So we have Adam as the son. We have Israel as the son. And they rebel against God. They sin against God. They disobey God. These sons offer us no hope of salvation. What we need is a greater son. What we need is a son who will perfectly obey the father. What we need is a son who can rescue us. So Matthew is going to show us through Jesus' birth, his life, his death, and resurrection, that he, he relives the story of Israel, its events, and its characters. So when we look at Israel, when we see that Israel was an unfaithful son who continually rebelled against God, we see then that Jesus comes as the true son, the true Israel, faithful and righteous, always and perfectly obeying the Father. Now, we could give many, many examples of how Jesus does this. I mean, uh, the story of Israel in the Old Testament, for example, in Genesis, at the very end of Genesis, we see Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel. He and his 72-member family, they travel to Egypt seeking refuge from a famine, from destruction. And so now here in Matthew, in the very beginning, we see Israel, or we see Jesus going to Egypt also seeking refuge. One of the greatest Old Testament figures was Moses. Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. He is the one who led God's people out of Egypt in, uh, in what we read, the great Exodus, which is probably the, the greatest single event in the Old Testament. And here in our passage and all throughout Matthew, he, Matthew wants us to see that Jesus comes to us as the greater Moses. As he's living out the story of Israel, he's primarily going to be focusing on Moses, showing how, God, how Jesus has come to relive the story of Moses. So let me, let me, give, you, um, let me give you, we'll see, seven ways or eight ways. We'll, we'll find out. Number one, uh, number one, just as Moses was kept safe from a baby-killing king, so Christ here in chapter 2 of Matthew is kept safe from a baby-killing king. That's number one. Number two, just as Moses led Israel out of Egypt from being slaves, so Jesus performs the greater exodus by freeing us from slavery to sin. Number three, just as Moses led Israel through the Red Sea, representing their baptism. So the very next thing that is recorded is Jesus will now go into his baptism into the Jordan River. Number four, just as Moses led Israel into the wilderness where they were tempted by Satan and they failed, so Jesus in Matthew 4 will go into the wilderness where he perfectly, obey, perfectly obeys the Father and overcomes the temptation of Satan. Number five, just as Moses went up the mountain to receive the law of God, so in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus goes up the mountain and gives the law of God. Just as Matthew, just as 
Moses fed people in the wilderness with manna. So in Matthew chapter 14, Jesus feeds the 5,000 in a wilderness-type setting. Number seven, just as Moses sent out 12 spies into the promised land, so Jesus in Matthew 10 sends out his 12 disciples to go proclaim the kingdom. Number eight, just as Moses goes up the mountain and his face shined with the very glory of God, so Jesus in Matthew 17 goes up the mountain and his face is the glory of God. Do you see it? Like Matthew can't be more clear. Jesus has come as the greater Israel, the greater son, the greater Moses, the greater king, the greater priest, the greater prophet, as he relives the story of Israel, but not ending in failure, but in perfect and absolute obedience. In ancient times, it was said, all roads lead to Rome. And what Matthew wants us to know, all scripture leads to Jesus. That's what he wants us to see. At Christmas, we celebrate the, the birth of Jesus, the one that all of history has been looking for and anticipating. Jesus is God's perfect gift to humanity. When no one else could save, no other son was worthy. So Jesus comes as the true and greater son who is worthy to save us from our sins. So parents, I, I want to encourage you. Tomorrow's going to be a great day. And some of you... You're like, Gary and them, you're going to open a present tonight. We're going to open a present tonight. We do it every year. It's pajamas. <laughs> I just don't know how there's that much excitement about it, but we open pajamas every year. It's a tradition that we do. I don't know. It's fun, and yet I'm like, it's clothes. Don't you know, as kids, we always wanted more than clothes? And yet that's what we do every year. We give away clothes. But we do that, and then tomorrow we're going to be around the tree, and we're, we're going to open up more and more presents, and it's going to be good, and it's going to be sweet, and we're going to have fun. But parents, you have at least one role tomorrow. It's to make sure that your kids know that the gifts under the tree are not the greatest joy. But that those gifts just simply point forward to a much greater joy. And so maybe you do what, what, what Gary and Nancy do. You, you read the Christmas story, which I greatly encourage you to do through the, through the Gospel of Luke, or you can come into Matthew and read it. But read through the birth narrative of Jesus with your family. Help them to know, help them to see that the reason we celebrate Christmas is not simply because we just want stuff, but because we have a great need, and that need is Jesus, and he came as the greatest gift from the Father. So, so do that tomorrow. Parents, kids, don't let your parents open presents without the birth narrative. Now, I might say at this point, well, I'm so glad Jesus comes and relives the story of Israel. That sounds great for the people of Israel. But why do I? Why do I need to be saved? Why do I need to know this history of Israel? How does that affect me, a Gentile, a non-Jew? So it brings us to our next point. At Christmas, Jesus comes as the one who will end the exile and wipe away all tears. So if the Exodus was the single greatest event in the Old Testament, then surely the second greatest event would be the exile. The exile is when God's people were defeated by God's enemies, Assyria and Babylon. These nations punished Israel because of their disobedience to God, and they brought them, they deported them into foreign land. This took place because Israel was sinful, rebellious, and disobedient. In fact, the context of Hosea, the passage we just read, Hosea chapter 11, 
is all about um, the deportation, all about exile. Assyria is about to destroy the northern kingdom, Israel. Years later, Babylon will come and destroy the southern kingdom, Judah, which is where Jerusalem is. And what what the Old Testament wants us to do and what, what the New Testament wants us to do is when we read the Old Testament and we see the disobedience of Israel, we see the sinfulness of Israel, we're not just to go, wow, Israel was a really sinful people. But what we're supposed to do as we read it goes, we as humanity are a very sinful people. I just want you to think about this. We have, we have, we have Adam, who's the perfect son of God at the moment perfectly righteous, and yet he fails to follow God. We then have Israel saved, brought into uh, the promised land, given the law of God, and fails to follow God. It's not, our problem is not simply circumstantial. If Adam, who was born, or who was created without sin, was not able to walk obediently to God, and if Israel, who was brought out of Egypt, given the law of God, placed in the promised land, they were not able to follow God, then your problem, my problem, the world's problem is not, man, if we just had better circumstances, if I had better parents, if I had a better house, if I had a better car, if I had more money, if, if we looked different, if we acted different, if my genealogy was different, if all of those things were better, then my life would be right. The entire Bible says no. The problem is not circumstances. The problem is our heart, which is why Paul will say in Romans 3.20, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In Ephesians, Paul will also say in chapter 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power, Satan, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. All of scripture is clear. Whether you're Jew, you're Gentile, rich, poor, black, white, whatever it is. The greatest problem you face is your sin and disobedience to God. Scripture is clear. Every single person is born sinful. Just as Israel went into exile because of their sinfulness and were separated from his presence. So we are born into spiritual exile. We need to see that. We're born separated from God. We're born naturally disobeying and rebelling against God. And so in verse 16, we come and we see Herod. Herod personifies the sin and the evil in this world. He doesn't just represent Satan, but he represents the evil that courses through this entire world. Out of anger, he unleashes his furious rage against all the male babies, two years old and younger, in Bethlehem and the surrounding area. And you can rest assured of all the things that we know about Herod and how crazy and power-hungry he was and jealous he was to defend his position, that Jesus was not two years old. Very likely he was six months, he was a year old, he was well under the two-year mark. So whatever Herod did, he said, well, if he's this old, I'm going to make sure I kill them all this age and younger, and I'm not going to limit my killing just to Bethlehem, but all the surrounding area, just in case he, he's outside of Bethlehem. What we have here, in, in all the world's power, in all the world's fury, an unleashing of evil against God. He's doing everything he can to exterminate this child. And this 
is the sin that runs through this world. Now, you might say, okay, I'm not like Herod. There's no way I would do anything that evil. Don't compare me to that. But if we think for a moment, we might not be as far from Herod as we, as we might think we are. Our culture supports a multi-billion dollar industry, industry that kills babies in the name of women's rights every year. Another billion dollar industry exploits and dehumanizes women through pornography. If you think about sex trafficking, another billion dollar industry that, that enslaves people to the other's sexual fantasies in this world. And for us to go, well, I'm, I'm not Herod. That's not me. That's not the world that I live in. I think if we think a little more carefully, we see that we are not far from Herod at all. Now, with that being said, because we're all sinful does not mean that we're all as sinful as we can be at all times. Does that make sense? So we're all sinful, but that doesn't mean we're taking our sinfulness to the extreme limit. We do have characters in the Old Testament, throughout the Bible, Pharaoh, Herod, people like that, people in history that would represent this, extremities. But, but we also are sinful. Not everyone here is tempted to slaughter human life in order to maintain their positions of power. Praise God. But know this. Satan, the ruler of this world, would love to tempt you to be more fixated on your finances and your Amazon, Amazon shopping cart than the glory of God. He would love for you to be consumed with your desire for cars and wealth and vacations. He would love for us to think that our immediate pleasure and happiness is paramount at whatever the cost. He would love for us to, to hold up rainbow flags in the name of equality. He would love for us to live good, moral, safe lives, trusting in ourselves rather than knowing, trusting, bowing, and worshiping God. And so while we might not commit evil acts like Herod, the very same evil resides in every single we failed to love God, we failed to obey God, we failed to worship him, and we have failed to bow down before him. We are enslaved to sin and thus born into spiritual exile. And so, as you can see, Christmas is a great time of joy, right? That's how we started it. We're all feeling quite joyful at this moment. You're like, great, why did we come here? And it only gets better as we now turn to the actual passage that Matthew turns to. It says, remember Rachel. And the weeping she does for her children. So, so look at verse 18. What does this tell us about King Jesus? How do we read about the weeping of Rachel and we come to joy in Christ? Look at verse 18. Let's just unpack a few of the details. In 586 BC, Babylon destroyed Jerusalem. They took many of the Jews into exile, meaning deported them to Babylon. And they held them in Ramah, which was about five miles north of Jerusalem, that was the holding place before they would go off on to Babylon. So that, that's the significance or one of the reasons that's significant. So then who's Rachel? Why is she weeping? Well, Rachel was the favorite wife of Jacob, whose name was Israel. She died giving birth to the youngest son, Benjamin, and on the way to Bethlehem, uh, on the way to Bethlehem, and she was buried in Ramah. Very good. Crowd participation. 
She represents the mother of all Israel weeping for her children being taken into exile. The fact that she refuses to be comforted expresses the absolute despair and hopelessness of the exile. Her despair is our despair because of sin. We can't save ourselves. Don't miss what's being said here. Israel's rebellion towards God and the killing of babies is the evil that resides in every human heart. But here's the thing. And this, this, this is the good part of this passage. I know you're all like waiting. When does it get good? This prophecy happens in what we call Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31 is not a chapter of despair at all. It is a chapter of absolute hope, and Matthew's readers would know this. So let me just give a few verses from Jeremiah 31 to show the hope of this chapter. Everything is about Israel coming out of exile. Everything is about Israel um, having joy and being restored. So these are just some of the things we read. Jeremiah 31, 4. This is God's Again, I will build you, and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Again, you shall adorn yourself with tambourines, and shall go forth in the dance of merrymakers. Verse 11, for the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. Now listen to the two verses that immediately come after verse 15. Matthew quotes verse 15, so this is verse 16, and then verse 17. Thus says the Lord, keeping your voice from weeping and your eyes or keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. Verse 17, there is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. So we have Rachel weeping, and then right after, stop weeping. All the, all the sorrow is coming to an end. There is hope. Why? Why is there hope? Because there's going to come a new covenant that's going to fully and absolutely deal with our sins. And we see that at the end of chapter 31. This is what 31 and part of verse 34 reads. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And then at the very end of verse 34, it says this. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Matthew quotes Rachel's weeping, not to emphasize despair, but to emphasize the hope that the Christ brings. Jesus has come to put an end to the weeping. So as we're getting this picture of evil in the world, of, of, a Herod, of Herod and this evil king slaughtering children, but we're told, oh, but wait, with the coming of Christ, the beginning of the end has come. Our tears are to be wiped away. There is a new covenant, one that deals with our hearts, one that brings about forgiveness and adoption into the family of God. And how does this take place? How is this new covenant established? It's through Jesus. It's at the cross. At the cross, Jesus goes into exile, experiences the, disobe or experiences the judgment and punishment of of God, just as Israel did as they went. And yet, what's the difference? Jesus doesn't stay in exile. He rises from the grave three days later, conquering sin, conquering death, conquering Satan. At Christmas, Jesus enters into a dark world to save us from the darkness, to bring us into the light, to bring us out of exile, out of separation from God, into the presence of God, so that we would enjoy God for all of eternity. That's why he quotes this. 
He wants us to know, yes, there is weeping. Yes, there is sorrow, but it's come to an end because Christ is here. Do you see why our hope and joy at Christmas is like a rich vein of gold running deep under the mountain then? Well, there is sorrow, but it has come to an end in Christ. Christmas changes everything. Christ has come so we would no longer be enslaved to evil. We would no longer have sinful desires or be enslaved to them. We would no longer be separated from God, but we would be joined to God, adopted in God's family. We would become sons and daughters of God. We are given new hearts that now desire to love him, please him, and obey him. How could our joy, if this is our Christ, not be unbreakable, not be unending? I want you to think about it for a moment. I want to hang out here, and if we get to the rest of the sermon, we do, but... But I think it's important to think through this joy. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 6.10, he says this. He says, we're sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We're sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. So as Christians, we're, we're not immune to pain. We're not immune to, to heartache and sorrow. You might be here today, and, and you're wrestling with health issues, with relational issues, Perhaps your heart is saddened because of the loss of loved ones. They're not here at this time. And you're, you're remembering. You're remembering them. And, and the loss of them is hard. I know. I know for me, like four years ago, my mom, she had a stroke today, tomorrow. And then a few weeks later, she passes away. And that's just my story there. But, but we all have tons of stories in this room of why, why there's sadness, why there's heartache, why there's still pain. Sadness, pain, sorrow is real, but for the Christian, there's a bedrock of joy that's unable to be shaken. Christ has come and he saved us from sins. He ends the exile so we're no longer enemies. And we're told now that a day is coming when he's going to return. And at that day, all evil, all sin, all wickedness will be forever banished and only those who know him, who love him, who trust him, who obey him, will spend time in his presence experiencing everlasting peace. That's the hope that we have. Because Christ has come, died, and rose from the grave, sin has been defeated. Until that day comes, we still experience the effect of sin. You're still going to be hit with the arrows of the enemy. But Matthew 16, this is what Jesus says. I will build the church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Those are the words of our king, the one who has come into the darkness, that he would put an end to the darkness, says, it's going to remain for a little while. But if you believe in me, you have a joy. That's unable to be shaken. So yeah, you will have moments of sorrow. And sometimes they will feel intense and overwhelming. But they do not shake the bedrock of joy that we are built upon. Because Christ is our king. And at Christmas he has come into the darkness to bring the light. So we would forever, ever spend time with him. We would have joy that is unbreakable, unending, and unconquerable. So really the question would then be. Why would anyone not want this king, right? Like, if this is the king, and this is what he's come to do, 
Why is not everyone just bowing down before him? Why do they, when they not hear this message, they go, well, that's the king we want. That's the king we need. We need the greater king, the greater Israel, the greater son, the greater Moses, the greater priest, the greater prophet, the greater Moses, the greater one. Brings us to our last point. At Christmas, Jesus comes as the unlikely king who forever rules the nations. So in verses 19 through 22, we see that the Herod dies, and we go, whew. Finally, he's gone. But then what happens? His son comes onto the throne. In fact, his kingdom is divided among three sons, and, and Achilles, is, or Achilles is, is the least liked. He was a tyrant. He massacred 3,000 people in one day. He was so incredibly brutal that Rome in 6 AD, with just a short period of time after he became king, deposed him of his rule because he said, you're too violent for Rome. So just... Figure that one out. Because of the horrific rule of this king, Joseph and his family, they do not go to Judea, but they take a detour. They go to Galilee, and they come to a city called, some of you read it, Nazareth. Thank you, cowboy. Here again, we see that he fulfills scripture, but what's odd is this passage, this quote, this prophecy appears nowhere in the Old Testament. So did Matthew get it wrong? This is also the only time that Matthew uses the word prophet in its plural form. Verse 23 says, so what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. So not prophet, but prophets. Matthew's not referring to a specific text, but rather a theme that runs throughout the prophets. So what's this theme? There's many ideas, and I think they're all very good, and there's different ways you can wrestle with them, and there's truth probably in each of them. Uh, but I'll just give one, and I think it stands above the rest, although I think the others uh, have value also. But it's that this world will reject the king. And it shouldn't be surprising. We see Jesus comes into a dark world, and the king of this world, Herod, empowered by Satan, wants to kill Jesus, and so as we come, we see he comes from Nazareth, which means, yeah, he'll, he'll be despised and rejected and looked down upon. Now, now, why do we say that? Well, the key is, is the word Nazareth. Nazareth was a small, non-important town. Listen to what, in the Gospel of John, this is what we read. John chapter 1, verse 45 and 46. Philip found Nathanael, said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus and Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Two things. Number one, John also speaks of the prophets speaking about this one that comes from Nazareth. Number two, Nathanael points out, nothing good comes from Nazareth. It is a despised, despicable, small, hick town that nobody wants to go there. Matthew introduces Jesus, the king of the nations, in chapters 1 and 2, and yet he does not want us to have rose-colored glasses. He doesn't want us to think, so Jesus is here, and it all just works out great. Everyone's going to be happy. Butterflies are going. Roses and dandelions are blooming. He's like, that's not what's going to happen. Rather, Jesus will be rejected. He's going to be an unlikely king, one that does not fit into the worldly idea of a king. He does not come riding on a war horse. He won't promise you riches here in this world. He won't promise you fancy cars. He won't promise you 
massive amounts of pleasure here on this earth. He does not promise safety and comfort in this life to anyone that will come and worship and bow down before him. He offers you no wealth, no prosperity. That is what he comes and does not promise. Rather, he comes and preaches a message of repentance. He rebukes the moral. He rebukes the religious who trust in themselves. He takes up his cross and says, you need to take up your cross and follow me. In Isaiah 53, this is what we read. The Messiah will be despised. He'll be rejected by men. He'll be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So the king has come. He's going to perform the greater exodus and bring us out of slavery to, to the world and to sin. He's going to bring us out of exile from separation from God and bring us into the presence of God. And yet he is an unlikely king. And he will not be loved by the world. And if our king is not loved by the world, then what can we conclude? We who follow him will probably not also be loved by the world at times. And yet we have a joy. We might be sorrowful, and yet what? We're always rejoicing. Why? Because Jesus came. And he has dealt with our problem of sin. He has forgiven us. He has taken us from slaves and made us sons and daughters into the kingdom of God. So know this. If you reject Jesus, then your best life is now. Your best life is now. So whatever you're experiencing, that's as good as it gets. And when you open up your tree tomorrow or the presents under your tree, that's your joy. And immediately satisfying and tomorrow it fades. And three years ago, although I was proved wrong by one of my children the other day, they remembered their present. But I bet you don't remember one of your presents three years ago. And surely 10 years ago, you definitely don't remember that one. Although don't challenge my children because apparently they're gifted in remembering gifts. But the point is, is everything under the tree fades. But Christ has come. As a true gift of grace that we need. And his glory never fades. Remember Moses? He went up the mountain and his face shined. But then what happened to that shining face? It began to fade. But Christ will never fade because he's the greater Moses, the greater son. He is the very glory of God himself. At Christmas, Jesus entered this dark world to rescue us from our greatest enemy, sin and Satan. Do not miss the meaning of Christmas. Jesus is the greater Moses, the greater Israel, the greater son. Where Adam failed, where Israel failed, Jesus does not fail. He is the grace of God who saves us. He's the grace of God who brings us out of slavery and brings us into the presence of God. Believe in Christ, experience everlasting, unbreakable, unending, unconquerable joy. In Christ, you are forgiven. In Christ, you are adopted. In Christ, you are destined to enjoy the rule of God forever. That is the joy we have on Chris, at Christmas. We, do have, we are sorrowful, but because of Christ, we are always, always rejoicing. Let's pray. Father, Father, we, we thank you for Christmas. Your son has conquered. He's conquered sin. He's conquered death. He's conquered Satan. Your son brings us out of slavery. Your son brings us into your presence. Your son might be rejected by the world, 
but he is approved by you. And we who believe in your son Jesus are forgiven and saved and counted your children. God, may we know that truth. I pray that everyone here would know that in Christ, they're saved. They're not slaves to sin. They're not separated from you, but your spirit dwells within them as the guarantee of their inheritance that you will be with them forever. Your son is the king, the savior we need. Father, may everyone here, may we trust in you. May we trust in Jesus and may we have joy unconquerable. Praise God for Christmas. In your name, Jesus, amen. At this moment,